the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia. I'm a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, Amy Brown-Hughes, and Jules Martinez-Olivieri. We are a collective that is working to explore biblical studies and theology and the bridges between them. And uh, in this episode, Drew is going to be interviewing me about my book, Portraying Violence, uh, which was published last year with Cambridge University Press. And I promise I didn't force Drew to do this because I interviewed him about his book. Um, So he asked, and I obliged. And I'm looking forward to you hearing about uh, the work I've been doing on violence in the Old Testament. And I'm actually working right now on another book uh, for uh, IBP Academic on wrestling with violence in the Bible, So, which is, you'll hear from this interview, it's a different angle than I take in the um, book that I'll be talking about in this episode. Uh, thanks so much for listening, and thanks to Ed Hackey for producing the show, to Rebecca Tarjun for all her help with marketing and media. Uh, by the way, there's a newsletter you can sign up to on our website, I think. Um, you can go to onscript.study. And I think there's a sign up there for our newsletter and also information about our other podcast, which is called Biblical World. And we've got a lot of great episodes there now. That that podcast focuses on history, culture, archaeology, geography of the Bible. So if you're into the the dirt of biblical history, then that's a great um, the the kind of real world context of the Bible. That's a it's a great podcast, and um, I'm really proud of all that the um, co-hosts have done there. So thanks again for listening and um, enjoy this episode. Well, hello. Drew, it's um, good to be here. <laughs> uh, oh, sorry. I hope right. you keep I, that I, in I, there. I got a little jumpy there. Go ahead. <laughs> all right. Well, hello, OnScript superfans, including you, Brent Strom. Today, I have with us somebody that I have been waiting to interview for a long time about this book. I've known about this book for a long time, and I'm very excited to share it with you all. It's Dr. Matthew Lynch. Uh, he is an old, uh, sorry, an assistant professor of Old Testament at Regent College in Vancouver and is actually the founder of the OnScript podcast along with Matthew Bates. He also blogs occasionally at Theological Miscellany, and that's theologicalmisc.net. He's published many articles on the Old Testament and three books, monographs, uh, monotheism and the institutions uh, in the Book of Chronicles with Mord Zebeck, first Isaiah and the Disappearance of the Gods with Penn State University Eisenbrands, and the book we're talking about today, Portraying Violence in the Hebrew Bible with Cambridge University Press. It's from 2020. Welcome, Matt. Thanks, Drew. Good to be here. How does it feel to be on this side of the microphone? You know, it... it uh... It's no less nerve wracking. <laughs> well, good, because I have some hard questions to put to you and I'm ready. I hope you have expansive answers. Okay. So, I mean, I, th- I think first of all, everybody will recognize your voice who listens to this podcast, but not everybody will know your theological and biblical interest uh, that you've been working through in the past. Uh, I think of you as coming into biblical studies through Isaiah scholarship, and you did a stint working on monotheism with our old friend, Nathan McDonald. 
So how do you move from Isaiah scholarship to this kind of very expansive topic uh, of violence in the Bible? Yeah, well, I've, I've always struggled, I think, to find the precise center of gravity in my scholarship. I, th- I think some scholars have like their thing. They're an Isaiah scholar or they are, to pick a random thing, a scholar of Hebraic thought. Um, but, but I think, I think for me, I, I've always had sort of several interests on the, on the stove at the same time. And, and so there's, there's not like a direct line of connection between Isaiah and my interest in violence. In fact, the, the stuff on violence comes more out of wrestling in the classroom with students about what to do with violent texts in the Old Testament. And that's just a, it's, as you know, it's a recurrent question. You know, if you're in a classroom teaching Old Testament for, you know, more than, more than a week, you're going to get the question, like, what do we do with all these violent texts and the portrait of God as wrathful and vengeful and angry? And so, you know, I was, I was once assigned a, uh, a Bible study at a church I went to in Atlanta and someone was going on vacation and said, Oh, could you, could you teach a session on the Canaanite genocide in Joshua? And I was like, <laughs> okay, let's go. <laughs> yeah. And I hadn't really, I didn't have like a talk prepared. And so I had to, I had to go through the book and think about it. And, and, and what I found really surprised me. I was like, wow, th- this book actually has a really nuanced portrait of exclusion and inclusion and, and violence. And, you know, so that, that sort of propelled me into writing a bit about it and then um, reading around in that literature more. And as I did so, I noticed that there were some huge gaps in the field. And so I thought, well, I'd, I'd like to take the opportunity to address the question of how the Bible itself conceptualizes the problem of violence. And that's where this book comes from. And of course, I'm a huge fan of just that approach because you're thinking about the conceptual world of the biblical authors, which is something I'm very big into. But I, part, part of my question when you, I think you initially sent me this manuscript is I thought, wait, nobody's done this before, <laughs> which I guess is a sign of a good idea, right? But um, why do you think nobody has come at it quite this way before? I mean, certainly people have come at it in bits and pieces, but um, why is yours the first book in 2020 on this topic? Yeah, I'm, I mean, there there might be something out there that I'm still not aware of, but I, but I think that I think the subject matter almost propels us too quickly into the apologetic mode or the in, in both senses of the term. So apologetics either defending scripture against the idea, you know, against the attack that God is inherently violent or immoral, or on the other side, sort of the kind of apologetics that um, I guess you could say sort of defends readers um, from the Bible itself and, and is, is kind of playing that moral angle of we need to protect ourselves as readers against this monstrous God of scripture. And so I think, I think the subject matter of violence just kind of forces us so quickly into that mode of inquiry that maybe we don't stop and ask those prior questions. Yeah, so I think of um, your book, I, I've called it in my head, it's called Portraying Violence, but I think of it as a grammar of violence, which I think is a term or a phrase that you use uh, throughout the book. And you actually talk about four grammars um, in the Hebrew Bible, using grammar as a kind of metaphor here, or a catch-all. Uh, you talk about an ecological, um, moral speech, judicial grammar, and purity. 
I think most people will be caught off guard, A, that those are the four grammars of violence in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and I think in a good way that should catch us off guard. Um, why these four and why not, you know, conquest, genocide, God's wrath, I think would be one of the grammars that people would have expected. Uh, so how did you narrow down on these four? Yeah, so the, my approach to the question of violence, um, again, was was not so much what do we as readers do to account for this violence in the Bible and and still maintain faith or, uh, again, sort of defend readers against the God of Scripture, um, but rather how, how do biblical writers think about the problem in the first place? It, like, to put it simply, what's so wrong with violence? Asking that question forced me to, to sort of want to put violence in relation to like the discourse around violence. And so to do that, you have to look at like, what are the, what are the values that come into, into collocation, like into connection with violence throughout scripture? And, and what do those kind of value configurations yield for us as readers? And so, so I kind of asked myself, like, what are those concerns and patterns of representation that we see consistently throughout scripture that sort of led me to look carefully at all the texts that explicitly refer to violence in negative terms, like in other words, like as a problem, and and then to look at okay, what are the what are the specific values that it comes into connection with? So with the ecology grammar, the value that's that violence frequently comes into connection with is the preservation or the integrity of creation. And so violence is seen as something that tears at that, that, that pulls creation apart and that threatens instability in the created order um, or death in the created order. So, so that, that became the sort of grammar lens for thinking about violence as a problem. It destroys creation. It tears it apart. Same with moral speech. I, saw, I noticed that consistently in the Psalms and Proverbs, violence is seen as something that's rooted in and connected to deceitful and arrogant speech. And so that, that's a particular value configuration that we should pay attention to, because that's how the Bible is setting the field when discussing violence. Yeah, so to contemporize that particular arrangement, that violence and arrogant speech, and we'll come back to these in, in a moment, but I'm, I'm trying to think in the, in the American context, do people ever associate violence with arrogant speech? Or um, I, I'm trying to think, do we even necessarily think that arrogant speech is, is a bad thing? I'm thinking of sports arena right now. but Yeah, I mean, I think the, the January 6th rally, I think is a, a classic right. example of, of arrogant speech leading to violence. And, and I think, I think Proverbs is very, and, and Psalms especially are very attuned to that. They're, they recognize, of course, violence as it spills out into the public sphere is going to have some rootedness in a particular kind of speech that's, that ignites violence. And, and, and I would say the Bible even goes one step further um, and would, would say that speech itself is a kind of, can be a kind of violence. And we have that idea today too. Verbal violence is is not an unknown phenomenon, um, but but I think in some ways the psalmist uh, almost puts verbal violence like center stage when thinking about the problem of enemies, even you know, like asking God to protect him from 
the tongue of the enemy. That's a really interesting way of framing things. Why did the psalmist put it that way? And, and you know, there's um, Psalm 55 is a psalm where the psalmist is lamenting all the violence that's in the city and, you know, the rampant oppression of the poor and, you know, all the, all these kind of social problems. And then the psalmist comes to like the big ask, okay, God, here's what I want you to do and says, divide their tongues. And, and again, that's like, why did they land there? Why not say, you know, send, send out guards to destroy them or, you know, something like that. But why is it their tongues that need dividing? Um, It's, it's really like a, almost a, a parallel to the Tower of Babel. Like the division of tongues is is the solution to the problem of, of like arrogant upsurge that results in violence. So you know, as we look across Scripture, I think I think we see like this this real centering of that way of framing violence that that made me think, okay, I want to pay attention to to why they think that speech is so deeply connected to violence. So coming back to your um, your ecology of violence. Um, paradigm. You say on page 30, and I'll just quote you here, interpersonal violence tears into the seamless fabric that links a human to his or her environment and even threatens the order of creation itself. I think a lot of people with caricatures of the Hebrew Bible will think, well, wait, weren't these the people, um, you know, they may bring a massive caricature, like weren't they committing genocide against people or even minor caricatures, like weren't they massacring animals in mass and you know, you look at how Solomon inaugurates the temple um, or just the sacrificial system. So how do you see um, the ecology of violence with humans? And, you know, we could just think about humans and each other, or humans and animals. Why is that a seamless fabric and, and how does that get torn uh, in what ways? Yeah, I mean, on the, um, on the weren't they slaughtering tons of animals thing, I, I almost laugh at that caricature because uh, ancient Israelites ate far, far, far less meat than we do today. Um, the, the scale of animal slaughter is hundredfold uh, magnitude greater in the, in the present context. So meat was a luxury. And so this idea that Israel, Israelites are kind of killing animals all the time is an, an unfair caricature. And also these are animals from their own domestic sphere that they looked after and they had a deep connection to rather than, you know, we outsource all of that. But in, in terms of like, weren't the Israelites, you know, is this somehow hypocritical that they would portray violence as a problem because it destroys creation when they themselves are engaged in quite a bit of violence? I, th- I think what, it, what I'm trying to get out there is texts that, that are focused on violence as a problem do tend to emphasize the fact that it, it ruins creation. And this goes back to Genesis, like early chapters of Genesis, where humans are portrayed as deeply connected to the land and animals. So, you know, I think we're, a lot of us are probably familiar with the idea that humans are made, that the Adam, the human is made from Ha'adamah, the, the ground for Avodah, for service to the ground or of the ground. So there's, there's this kind of intimate connection, hum, uh, animals and humans both sh- share the same um, life breath uh, from God and so on. So, there are many ways in which humans and animals in the created order are portrayed as integrated in both Genesis 1 and 2 in their own ways. And, and so as the story unfolds in Genesis and violence comes in as, as like one of the primal threats to that created order, we see that as violence increases, 
the relationships between humans and the ground begins to disintegrate and fall apart. And and so I think I think that whatever we say about say Joshua, where Israel goes in and kills a bunch of Canaanites, we have to kind of read that sort of back through the lens of Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis that sets up the ideal situation or, or like the primal problems or the root issues and kind of read forward rather than reading backward from, from Joshua to those earlier texts. Yeah. And I think we can all imagine today, you know, if you've ever been in a, a war zone, an active or a deactivated war zone, like you can see the physical scars on the landscape. Um, but uh, I think you, you are also making the case if I'm not mistaken, that even individual acts of violence um, will also have ecological impact. Uh, so that's not obvious to everybody. So what, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the prime example there is, is Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. So Cain kills his brother Abel, and then God comes to him and says, you know, what have you done? You, your brother's blood cries out from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive his blood from your hand. So there's this really intimate connection between the ground having a mouth, swallowing Abel's blood, receiving it from Cain's hand. You know, so so the way that that problem is portrayed right there at the beginning is in terms of a connection between Cain, Abel, and the ground. And that's kind of what I wanted to to foreground <laughs> is is this idea that like why should the ground get involved in this dispute between Cain and Abel? Or, you know, I think we're okay with God getting involved because, you know, sins are seen as an offense against God, but they're also seen as an offense against the land. And so I think sometimes we forget that latter point um, that the Bible comes back to time and again, that like sins against each other are sins against the ground. Um, and violence typifies that in a way that, that that's not exclusive to violence because other sins do that, but is particularly emblematic of violence. And, and so we see this show up in other places too, like Job laments and he says, you know, if I've, if I've defrauded my, my workers and caused them to die because I didn't pay them enough or, you know, take care of them, may the ground curse me. And so Job, Job just assumes that the ground would get involved if he's wronged and caused the death of his workers. Um, Hosea talks about the idea that the animals and the land languish because of all the bloodshed in Israel. And, and you've got like deer going around panting and longing for water because of bloodshed. And so, so there's an assumption on the part of the biblical writers that's not really rationalized. Like they don't have to explain it. They just, it's part of the, the way the world works that, that human on human violence tears apart the land because I think because we're connected. Even when animals get involved in violence against humans. Yeah. They're yeah, held exactly. accountable as well, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the interesting thing in Genesis 6 and um, shows up again in Genesis 9 that, that the violence, the to I call it total violence, um, that ends up collapsing the whole created order in the flood is not just human on human violence, but it's also animal violence, um, which is a curious thing to us that because I think the idea that animals would be held morally accountable is a bit strange. And, and then in uh, Genesis 9, God says that he would hold animals to account for, for blood that they take. So, but if you see violence as a creational phenomenon, it makes sense then that God would, would care about animal actions as well.
Yeah, there's so much there, and in, including in the cane story, as you mentioned, there's a long wordplay on on dirt or ground there um, that's going all the way up through the end of the flood narrative. Um, so why would the ground get involved? I think that's the question that has to be put forward. Yeah, it makes sense why courts would get involved. It makes sense why humans might get involved and try to stop somebody in some immoral uh, action or violence. But why would the dirt itself get involved? Yeah, and that's kind of what I want to want to get at with like how the Bible's conceptualizing it. Like that that for the biblical writers, like just like for us, God getting involved or the courts getting involved, it's quite natural that the ground would respond. Just like conversely, the ground, the trees will clap their hands with praise when the exiles return to the land, you know? So like restoration to the land is accompanied by praise and celebration of the land itself. Um, so like the reintegration also has of Israel to its place has a response from the land. So the land's getting involved on both sides and not, you know, not just in the negative sense. You also notice there's an acoustical, besides the clapping and the praising, there's no booing going on, um, but there is a type, this, uh, you notice the words tumult and uproar, and, and there's a couple other words that get keyed in here. Um, I guess it is surpri- it was a little surprising to me. Oh, yeah, there, you call it the acoustics of violence, but um, what does it have to do with anything? Okay, yeah, so, so what? There's uproar and tumult. Why does that figure into their conceptuality? Yeah, I, th- I think... The way it factors in is is that they see that there's there's a kind of convulsing in creation that happens when when violence erupts. That convulsing takes the shape of a you know like the upsurging of waves. Like there's a there's a violent upheaval in the created order as human on human or animal on human violence uh, erupts. So it's it's like the groanings of creation um, that are being articulated. Uh, in the Psalms and and elsewhere, and also in the cries of victims too. There's there's a sense in which uh, a victim's outcry is, is part of that sort of natural creational response to the problem of violence. Yeah, I likened it at one point to uh, air elastic flutter, where you know, like the, there's this there's this bridge in Tacoma, Washington, I think it was, where where like the pitch of the bridge's sort of structure began to flutter. Because it, it started to match the acoustic whistle of the wind, and it convulsed so much that it just eventually just split apart. And and uh, and I think in a similar way, the psalmist recognizes that that violence has a a kind of sound to it in in the outcry or the surging of nations or um, what have you that that results in or manifests creation's own undoing. Yeah. Um... Man, I'm reading this book by Jacob Onyumbe right now. I don't know if you've gotten into that thing yet, but um, there's there's some interesting outcry discussion going on there, um, and the acoustic the acoustic issues that, of course, you find in in some of the prophets, oh, even in the Book of Judges, the 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 hoofbeats of the the victors, yeah. right? Oh, um, right, yeah, Judges five. Uh, yeah, so galloping, galloping. Yes, it's a <laughs> great little play. Okay, we shouldn't go off into that direction. Uh, it's a good little piece of poetry there. Uh, on page 114, let me quote you a little bit at length here, um, because we've talked about the acoustics, but now let's talk about the content of the words that get cried out um, by those those in, intent on harming others, right? And you say, quote, clearly the Israelites could distinguish legally between verbal threats, harsh words, and direct applications of force. Nevertheless, their poetry reflects a rhetorical picture wherein 
physical harmful, physically harmful acts and scheming sat together within larger linguistic framework of violence. So I think uh, this was actually quite it, like this is one of those surprising elements that made complete sense once you explained it, which I love books that do that. But that people scheming out loud or in their beds, kind of scheming in their beds at nights, um, that this is part of the uh, the grammar of violence. Um, I guess it just begs a massive question for us. Um, you know, it's it, although I think in the United States, I'm not sure in Canada, but I think it is actually illegal to make certain types of verbal threats. It's certainly illegal to say things like there's a bomb in my truck like somebody did yesterday um, in the United, at the in, in Washington DC and evacuated like a large part of DC. But I guess what you know as children we were taught like you know sticks and stones but words will never hurt me like this kind of like don't let bluster get in the way. So but you're you're dealing it right back into the conversation saying no scheming and talking about scheming is part of the problem of violence. Yeah, and in some ways I think the Bible is ahead of us in terms of real contemporary discussions about bullying that happen in school happen in schools. And I, I've had people kind of complain to me that, you know, we're getting so soft and we call everything violence now. And even like, you know, verbal bullying is now considered violence. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's how the psalm, like that was sort of the prime concern of the psalmist when when describing the enemy. And so uh, I think the, the Bible is actually further along in in its thinking about the the violence of speech. And, and I think part of that comes from, a, you know, you could say, a recognition, recognition that in a communal environment, the the integrity of the community depends on certain patterns of speech that, and and like values that are upheld by the community, or else the community can can threaten to fall apart. And so, when you when you read in terms of a communal mindset and look at the psalmist, and the psalmist is always concerned that there are little groups of people scheming against him. And I think that comes from maybe an experience in court. Let's say they they go to court and they they have like a knockdown obvious case, but, but somehow the judge is is ruling against them, and they're thinking, "What's going on here? God, root, get to the root of the problem." And the root of the problem in why I'm losing my land, or perhaps you know, you're experiencing sort of social violence, is that there must be people scheming in secret, and I just can't see them. And their words are hitting me like arrows. So I am physically being destroyed and ruined and wrecked um, by the scheming act of the enemy. Now, you could say sort of skeptically, well, the psalmist must be paranoid. But that kind of thing certainly must have been happening because it's it, there's laws against it all over the Bible um, about, you know, judges taking bribes and false witnesses and all this kind of stuff that that like speech patterns, which happen either in secret through scheming or through false accusations, or just um, social diminishment, where someone loses their status in the community through through some act of verbal attack, um, that these things were a real concern, so much so that they were considered acts of violence in their own right. So they weren't like, they didn't just precede violence. It's not like if you accuse someone falsely, you could be judged on the basis of what you accuse the person of and not just for the act of false accusation. So it says like if you accuse someone of murder, you could be put to death because that accusation is as severe as as the act itself. And so so I think that's the kind of like environment that I imagine around this talk around 
verbal violence that, that sort of helps make sense of it. Yeah, and it actually brings it right into the 21st century of social media, canceling, uh, public suggestion. Uh, there's all kinds of ways in which people scheme. And anybody who's been on social media long enough has probably had something like this happen to them. Um, uh, I, it, it does make me think of another type of scheming that's not private, uh, but that's quite public. It's a, it's a type of like maybe esoteric violence. So you think of the Nazis uh, kind of gearing up their rhetoric machine uh, against the Jews or even the Hutus against the Tutsis. This, uh, it began with uh, first getting uh, terms, your terms defined as subhuman, right? So the Jews were rats, they were vermin, they were infestation. Um, and for, uh, in Rwanda, it was, they were cockroaches, you know, they were some, they were some kind of pestilence that's, that you want to do away with and how hard is it to kill, you know, a rat or, or a cockroach where you might not want to kill a bunny or a cat, but uh, nobody thinks twice. So there's been, um, a lot of discussion, uh, on genocide that it, that there has to be kind of a preamble of diminishing the value of that person as a human, uh, first, where would you place that in the scheme of uh, biblical grammar of violence? Yeah, it's a good question. I think in terms of like, and again, I'm focused on places where the Bible is looking at the question of violence. And, and this is just as a sidebar, I, I think some people were a bit frustrated that I didn't like deal head on with Joshua right. um, and the Canaanite attack or genocide. I heard one judge's um, scholar who shall not be named that that, <laughs> so, that was so his I or think, her frustration. Right. But, but, I, but I think... The reason I didn't deal with Joshua is because violence is not thematized in Joshua. Um, w w I'm happy to have the discussion of Joshua. I'm writing on it right now. Like that's that's a real area of interest of mine, but not my interest here. Hmm. Um, in, in terms of like scheming, I think the the Bible. Wait, can we go back to Joshua for a second? Yeah. yeah. Uh, just to clarify exactly what you mean when you say it's not problematized. Yeah. Uh, just, thematize. Yeah, yeah th thematize. Can you just mm -hmm. real quickly say oh, exactly yeah. what you mean by that? Sure. So, by contrast, in Genesis 4 through 6, the subject of violence is front and center. The, the writer is talking about violence, talking about bloodshed, um, using all the terminology and the problematic framings that come with that, uh, or, you know, the framings of it as a problem that come with it. Uh, whereas Joshua, what Israel does to the Canaanites, we see it as outside readers as an act of violence, and I think that's appropriate and fine, but the biblical writers didn't use that language to talk about what was happening there. Um, so it it was not seen in those terms, and so I, I didn't focus on those texts because I was interested in the text where the, where the Bible is saying, hey, violence is here, a subject we're going to discuss, and it's a problem. Okay, thanks. Um, now we can go back to the... Yeah, to scheming. Yeah, yeah so, the scheming. So, so I, th I think it's interesting because scheming is usually an act that's hidden and secret in the Bible. So I don't know if that, if at least with all the sort of scheming terminology, like the verb chashav, that, you know, the subject of violence comes out sort of into the public in the same way. Where it spills over into the public, though, and this is a kind of almost a sequence I noticed, is that hidden violence between, you know, secret people um, planning something together, it spills out into the public in the form of arrogance. And that's where it really goes public. And and you get things like taunts and boasts, which are also considered acts of violence. And and so I, I don't know where I would put like the sort of um, public propagandistic 
conspiracy theory type stuff that you get with, you know, Goebbels and the whole, you know, Nazi machine. I think the, the Bible would focus more on the public aspect of, of taunts, like the Edomites taunting the Israelites when the Babylonians came. That act of taunting was was equivalent to an act of violence or was an act of violence that Edom should be rightfully judged for. And, and so in, in the biblical framing of things, because like that bo- that boast constituted an act of violence, it, it socially and to some extent physically diminished the Israelites. Because there is at least the possibility of a causal order of yeah. scheming to go to war, taunting, and then actually and physically yeah. attacking. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and again, like we, we distinguish between the actual physical attack, but I think biblical writers would, would sort of step back and say the boast itself is a form of attack that could be turned back on their own head in the form of their destruction. And so like the psalmist will sometimes pray that the, the words of the enemies will come back on their own heads. Or like uh, in, in the book of Samuel, Shimei's curses against David w- would come back upon him. You know, that's the sort of um, what if scenario that David proposes, you know, who knows, God may handle it that way. So even though he just, quote unquote, just verbally attacked David, it might come back on him in the form of his death. Okay. So to drag you out into a sphere that you were, were not talking about at all in this book, but if, if I think I think about people I've known who've read these Psalms uh, and read these kinds of passages, and then they go on social media and they they almost portray, I'll, I'll just put them in this category, they're haters this way, right? That people are saying, I, sometimes I wonder if they just have imaginary friends who are saying bad things about them, but they perceive that people are out there hating on them. And that, I wonder if what you're saying actually does not quite fit. Um, you know, it's not the same category because there really is no causal sequence of violence to be done against them, or if it still fits just because it's taunting and boasting in some way. Yeah, I, th- I think it would be like, um, you know, with libel where you have to show damage. Um, the biblical writer would be like, you've got to show damage. And and if you can, then there's something to what you're saying. And and that's, so I don't think the psalmist who's claiming that the enemy is taunting or boasting or scheming privately is otherwise fine. You know, they've still got their job and, you know, the land's producing like it should and so on. Now, whether they're correctly diagnosing the causal relationship is something we can't get at, and I think we have to assume. But, but I think they would say you've got to show show damage, and if you can, then yeah, like that constitutes an act of violence. But if but if you're if you're being sort of falsely accused by someone with no power to do anything to you, then no big loss. Like that that does not set in motion the lex talionis process whereby someone could be judged equi- equi- for an equivalent act. You know, this goes back to your equivalent st- statement that they knew how to distinguish these things. Yeah. That, that this yeah, all exactly. required discernment and common sense. And Yeah. And so it, it helps to get in that cu- kind of culture because it's easy for us to look at something and say, why would you wish death on your enemy for, for them taunting you? Um, but if you think through this, that sort of causal effect of like, this could have real social implications where real people died, then it's like, oh, I see, you know, in, in that environment, then I could imagine why they would think that such and such an act warranted their death. But of course, they're putting it in God's hands. And that's an important part of the whole 
vengeance system um, that that really came to the foreground for me when I was reading Samuel. Uh, and, and I don't know if we were going to talk about this, but like one of the points of emphasis with the life of David that I noticed was that for all his many, many, many flaws. Um, Including his use of violence. Yeah. Um, David is portrayed consistently until his deathbed as someone who did not take personal vengeance. He consistently put that in God's hands. So him going to war was not personal vengeance. Even according to the logic of the text, handing over the, the sons to avenge the death of the Gibeonites was not personal vengeance. When he had the opportunity to take personal vengeance, he always refrained. Whether well, he saw... Uh, what? I, I mean, he... he eventually refrained when a woman came in and cooled yeah, yeah. his jets, right? Exactly. Yes. He, he was going to. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of that he learned from Abigail. There's one instance before that where he didn't kill Saul, but, but he, I mean, he had a real like, oh my goodness, I came so close to taking personal vengeance. Um, even though in, in their own sort of judicial reckoning, it might have warranted death. Um, because he he failed to give hospitality to men in need who had protected his property, and so that that again could like, you know, perhaps conceivably in that world warrant a death sentence. He didn't take it though, because like it's not his job to like settle the scores. So he he says, um, and and it's funny because Abigail says, "May the death of your enemies." You know, she she almost sort of predicts the death of her husband. I forget her exact phrasing, but but basically, like, may this come back on on your enemies, whoever they might be, um, happened to be her husband, and he did die, in fact, because God settled the score. It was a and, we- really weird relationship between those two. Yeah, yeah actually, the, everybody the, involved. <laughs> yeah, a weird dynamic. Um, but but David doesn't avenge himself on Saul, on Absalom, on Shimei on Nabal, you know, throughout the book. So there, there's this real like effort to portray David as, as a, someone who didn't take personal vengeance. And I think that's a, that's a key biblical value when it comes to like the way that Lex Talionis worked and why in the Psalms then the mechanism for dealing with things is to put that in God's hands. Mm. Kill him with kindness. Mm, that's right. <laughs> yeah, no, you 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 actually softened me on David. Uh, so I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna teach him slightly softer on uh, this next uh, yeah, semester. Yeah, I, I could I could maybe harden you in other ways, but yeah, you know, yeah. on that on that front, doesn't take much. All right, so we're gonna do a speed round uh, now. This is you don't you don't need to give long answers mm. here. This is I know just how quick. it works. So yeah. well, just let me. Let me explain. This is I have, oh. to, I have to read this legally to all of our contestants. <laughs> no prizes shall be received. Any prizes that are received will be taxed by both the Canadian and the U.S. government. Are mm-hmm. you ready for your speed round? I'm ready. Okay. Uh, can you finish the chorus to these classic songs? So I'll give you one line, and you just have to give me the next line. Okay. Oh, wow. Uh, and actually, I'm going to add one I in. I feel like we I had didn't... a different music upbringing, so this is going to be interesting. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So uh, El- the, the Elvis song... Um, we can't go on together. I don't know. With w- without no. um, joining hands. Suspicious minds. Okay. Okay. Uh, the 1969 Edwin Starr classic. Oh my I'll gosh. give you the first line. War, huh? What is love? Got to do with it. Wow. Got to do with it. People are like screaming at their radios right now. Who's listening to this on the radio? <laughs> I don't know, but we love you. 
whoever you are, <laughs> you're legit if you're listening to this on radio. Or is that possible? What, what is it good for? Mm. Is that another line I'm supposed to finish? Yes, absolutely nothing. Was, yeah, that's oh, the, okay, okay. Say it again. Uh, I mean, we could keep going. but Yeah, so I'm zero out of four, I think. Okay, uh, so the 1982 Iron Maiden classic. See, yeah. It's, I'll give you the first line of the course. Run to the hills. Um, where my help comes from. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. We were looking for run for your lives. Mm, uh, yeah. Okay. 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 Uh, the 1970s uh, Black Sabbath classic. Yeah. We, War we really had a different. What, yeah. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah. You might know War Pigs. War Pigs is a pretty good one. Generals gathered in their masses. Mm. Just like. Just like they always do. <laughs> Just like those generals always do. <laughs> generals Just like gathering. witches at black masses. Mm. Evil minds that plot destruction. Oh, this, this, um, I don't know. Okay. Drew, I'm, I'm, I'm Sorcerers of death's construction. All right. So I, I th well, if you did one more, I think I would strike out the whole inning. Okay. Um, well, I was trying to pick war and violence. Uh, I think I'm zero songs. out of eight there. But, um, oh, the only, sorry, the only, songs that are coming to mind are slayer tunes so mm. um, I, i'm actually infamously horrible at lyrics even like songs i love i don't know the yeah. lyrics to so so don't oh. feel bad um food wise would you rather eat at a pub in gloucester or in vancouver a pub oh like anywhere in vancouver in or any restaurant a pub oh a pub in vancouver a public oh, in, short in for gloucester. public house I th I think, yeah okay. i think in gloucester like okay the, the, the brits know how to how to do i, I love pubs like they, they know feel how like to pub it up. warm cozy living room you know yes yeah with mediocre food and yeah. warm beer and, and, and my image of like the the british pub like they're not hookup scenes you know like you just oh, go yeah. there and and it's like I remember this this old couple, they, they must have been like 85, just sitting there together silently, drinking their beer and watching everyone. You know, I mean, that's that's a different kind of pub culture. You, you didn't know that they'd fought all day long and now they were just drinking and drinking I, it off. No, no. I think they were communicating <laughs> telepathically. Yeah. That's, I think they were, at, they were at that age. Yeah. Pubs are are different. They're more like a, a well, they're a public house. They're, you know, yeah. like the family will go. We used to have Bible studies in the pub. It was, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, all right. If a penguin in a sombrero walks in the room and says, I'm going to give all y'all's bodies to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. What tool would he likely use to kill you? Oh, an icicle. No, I'm sorry. It's incorrect. Um, okay. What, what is, there, is this a joke? Is there an answer? No, that was. Okay. Okay. Just, I a, was looking for a genuine answer. Nice pick. Maybe a nice pick. Oh, Something nice. A bit more. Um, what nice pick? Mm. That was me responding to your ice pick. Oh, that's a nice <laughs> pick. What biblical theological work has had the greatest impact on your thinking about violence in particular? Oh, biblical theological work on violence. It, this is not biblical theology, but you know David Lambert's work mm, on yeah. on um, oddly enough repentance. Yeah, <laughs> um, but but it's more like his way of framing things I, I found just really helpful i had he was one of my professors at emory um oh I and and that. so <clears throat> yeah yeah so so his um his book was really helpful in, in thinking about 
getting at biblical ways of conceptualizing the world. Um, his project's a little bit different than mine because um, he's looking diachronically at how um, concepts change through time. Um, but but uh, I, I, yeah, I found his help really. Yeah, his that's book a great really book. Mm -hmm. I think I blurbed that book. You might have. The paperback, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, one of your favorite works of fiction? I, I love all the Kaim Potok novels so chosen probably do you like the tv series they made out of it i never saw it oh it's on it's on streaming right now oh is it good i don't know i, I haven't seen it okay the chosen okay um what would you do if you weren't doing this job well when i was an undergrad i for like two years was a business major and my plan was to start a mountaineering ministry that focused on like discipleship through mountaineering. And, uh, and would you and that, like get them stuck on a rock somewhere where they had nowhere to go, but yeah, be like, uh, and, and then that, start discipling them at that moment? Exactly. Well, <laughs> now I, that I, just, I have you here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was in an, I was, I went through a, a program like that in Austria and it just had a real big impact on me. And um, I, I think getting out in the mountains just, you know, it, it creates this special environment where you're struggling together and physically and also creates opportunities to wrestle with your faith. Um, and uh, I, I didn't, I wasn't aware of anything like that in North America. And I thought, mm. well, that would be, that'd be great. And um, actually, I, I, I really, I love mountaineering. And I did that yeah. um, with a youth group. We took our youth group to like a, there's a rock climbing camp in mm. the Cumberland Gap in Tennessee. And it was, oh. that, and, and we backpacked too. So like that whole carrying all your food and gear in. Yeah. Seeing yeah, how this weak like, everybody was, how flaccid exactly. their muscles were. I mean, it was a, it was an intense <laughs> program. It was, it was a six week program. Oh, wow. And um, that culminated in this, like, we, we had to go off on our own 48 hours, no food. Oh, um, wow. It, it was like, and then a lot of mountaineering, rock climbing, um, they would, it was almost like boot camp. They would get us up at in the middle of the night to do th different challenges, and so it was it was intense. But really, uh, you know, I loved it in my early twenties, yeah. and it was very community building. And I, I think, yeah, I, I would have loved to do something like that. So I like to fantasize that, like that's what I would have been doing. Um, but maybe my body would have said, like, no, you're actually not up for this. I don't know why you're wasting time with academics. That sounds like a much <laughs> Well, that, you know, that sounds like something you could actually see real outputs from. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, I think you can see real. Uh, I, the thing about being at Regent is that, like, that's the kind of thing where if I said I want to develop a course right. that does that, they would be like, "Okay, go for it." Yeah, you know, we, yeah, we've got precedent too. for that, and you know, they have a boat course here where um, students go out for maybe two weeks. I can't remember. Yeah, ten days on a boat. Um, rowing this like wooden sail, these two wooden sailboats and learning about creation theology. And, hmm. you know, I mean, that, that sort of thing is, is very welcomed at Regent. And so it might happen someday. I don't know exactly what form or shape it will take, but I would, I would love to. I'm all for it. Um, mm -hmm. Who do you mostly avoid at the Society for Biblical Literature annual meeting? Just the annual one. Oh, who do I, who do I avoid? That's a good question. Um, because I'm sure it happens. I'm just trying to think of like, yeah. I'm mostly excited to catch up with people. So I'm trying to think of like, maybe if I've seen the person like five times and, and, and you know, like, uh, 
Um, and you're actually yeah, looking like at the same books that you saw them the last time five times. Yeah, yeah. We're you know like the. I, I'm not sure, so I don't think I have a good answer. I, I welcome any person. I've got a very small list of people I might avoid, but it's very tiny. <laughs> very tiny. Um, I mean, if I have like a writing deadline that I'm overdue, oh on, yeah, that, someone like that. I don't know. Yep. No, I like I your. Ha- I haven't had that five major times. problem yet. You have to do that kind of like closed mouth smile nod when you see them because you're like you've seen them so many times already. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Okay. Uh, do you know how knock knock jokes work? But uh, no. Uh, well. I'm, I'm pretty sure familiar. you don't. I've heard you try, so. Yeah. Okay, let's go. <laughs> okay. Knock, knock. Who's there? Control freak. Okay, now you say control freak who. <laughs> okay. I've used that one. Thank you. Uh, darn it. Sounds like you're kind. All right. Yeah. Um, let's get back to this little book you wrote for Cambridge. Okay. Um, yeah. So in Matters of Justice... You examine what you, I don't know if you call it the logic of outcry, but this kind of the demand uh, that the outcry creates and the blood guilt that creates kind of this weightiness that needs to be uh, reckoned. Um, it, the way you talked about it, it sounded a little bit like my naive understanding of ma'at in, in Egyptian culture or, or maybe even something like Greek uh, logos, something in that kin, but, or, or or karma at the, at the very worst version of it. Um, is that what, is that how you conceptualize it? Um, I, I could see the parallels with Ma'at in that the outcry is like a distress signal that there's disorder in society. And so, whereas, um, in Egyptian thinking, Ma'at signals social and creational disorder. I think the outcry is a little bit more focused on, social, although it certainly has creational kind of implications as well, as we see, you know, with Abel's blood crying out from the ground. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a way of signaling that, that like there's disorder that need that, that creates a liability for everyone around, you know, so it's not just like one dude is, or woman is in distress uh, and that needs to be dealt with, although it's that too, but it's also like, we've got a situation on our hands, people, and this needs to be taken care of. Otherwise we've got sort of a social liability, um, that, you know, there's potentially blood guilt on all of us. So, so there is that kind of move to recognize the communal implications of an outcry, uh, and the need to deal with that. The thing that interested me too about the outcry was just the way that, um, you see a consistent pattern or like a sequence. And this is, this is part of like getting at cultural conceptions is not just value configurations, like how, you know, what do they put it, put it in relation to, but also what value sequences do you see or what kinds of patterns of sequence do you recognize in the Bible? So, so you frequently get an outcry and that puts a, a sort of a burden of responsibility on responsible agents and just agents in society. So the fact that a victim is is crying out creates a demand on those with power to do something about it. So I, th- I think that's where the Bible might have a sort of challenge for us in modern societies. Like if there's a victim crying out, there's someone who's responsible that, you know, and that's usually the goel in, in biblical thinking, um, the one who would 
restore the blood of the victim. In other words, they would restore order uh, in society by, by taking action. And that sequence usually went like this, like the victim cries out, the Moshia or the one with um, capability, power, socially and physically would respond. They would investigate. They would deliver if that's necessary and then enact judgment. And, and so that sort of sequence was set in motion by the outcry. And, and we see this across scripture, like, and that's what gets the whole Exodus story in motion, puts it into motion, is the Hebrews cry out, God's like, God's the Moshiach, um, who delegates to Moshe. He's the Moshiach. He, he hears it. He uh, investigates, comes down and takes action that, and you know, the rest is history. So, so that sort of sequence plays out consistently across scripture and such that then when we go back to think, okay, what is the problem of violence here? Well, it creates this sort of social disorder that needs to be dealt with and restored. Um, it, it creates a, a kind of set of responsibilities in society that need to be enacted. Um, or maintained. In some maintained, way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you see it in Genesis, right? That, um with Sodom and Gomorrah, he, yeah, he yeah, comes exactly. out, I'm going to go investigate and see right. whether this is altogether true, this report that's come up to me, right? Yep, um, yep. So, and that, so even God is investigating. Yeah, yeah, God's like regularly investigative reporter. So like, it, I mean, it, it's, um, yeah, and that idea of coming down is really important too, because someone who comes down is sort of outside the system, they're impartial, they're not implicated in in the wrong so that even that sort of spatial conceptualization is important because it highlights the impartiality of the one who's coming but then who takes seriously the cries of victims so you could also then emphasize the way that god sides with the victims but it's after sort of an impartial judgment on god's part and and in this in those cases of sodom and gomorrah we could also say the Exodus um, and others. I'm trying to think of any others that fit. I'm sure there are others, but there is nobody else to hear the outcry except for God, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so he's actually the only one that can intervene in those right. circumstances, or yeah, at least even, at that level. Yeah, even at the flood, like um, it, it, it talks about how how the sin, it, how the um, what does it say? Sorry, I don't have it in front of me. Yeah, uh, basically, but there is a sense it, that, that well, the wickedness. A, he says, like, it's come before me, right? Um, the, or the is end, I think it's the end of all flesh has come before that's me. That's right. That's right. And well, what does it mean? It's come before God. Well, I think it's the outcry coming up uh, or visually the sight of bloodshed. So there are two senses in which, which, um, violence can come before God. One is the cry, the outcry acoustically, and one is visually this, the sight of shed blood. And both of those activate God's involvement. That's a great transition to my next question, which is we need to talk about Rene Girard for a second. Uh, and speaking of bloodshed, um, and so he has kind of popularized, it's, it's, it's kind of a subset of his work, but it's, it's so present that it has to be dealt with that, uh, that sacrifice is a violent act and that it's actually, a, it's a particular an act to defer other kinds of violence or to deflate other kinds of violence. Uh, and you actually argue about the relationship between violence and ritual purity. So how is that comp, how does that relationship complicated beyond maybe the way that Rene Girard 
God love him and all his other stuff, but but I think I think he gets this one area wrong. Yeah, I you know I'm not a Gerard scholar, but I I did have to sort of read enough in him to because he comes up so frequently in discussions about violence in the Bible, and and yeah, there is that idea popularized I don't know by whom, but basically that that yeah sacrifice is a um, scapegoat system that um, because society needs to sort of deal with all its violent impulses and tendencies, better to inflict them on an animal than on each other. The one problem I have with that is that it's non-falsifiable because he says people don't know what they're doing when they do that. And and so you depend on um, kind of running really roughshod over the Bible's own way of explaining what it is Israelites are doing when they do it. Now, it's conceivably possible that participants in a ritual don't know the real reasons they do what they do. Um, but I think he he requires you to sort of run against the grain of scripture because in the Bible, um, acts of violence are not dealt with in the sacrificial system. Um, that, that deals primarily with ritual impurity that keeps you materially from participating in the worship system. And so- Except for that, that one act of violence. Day of Atonement? Or, uh, no, sorry. Uh, uh, um, numbers 19. Sorry, I'm- Blanking out the red, the red heifer. Oh, red heifer. Yeah. yeah. Does that one deal with violence specifically? Oh, oh Deuteronomy. If you killed a man. Deuteronomy. Sorry, Deuteronomy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, De- yes. Yeah, so there, there is one ritual that deals with um, an unknown murder. And and yeah, so that, that that's one exception. The Day of Atonement's maybe another one because it deals with Israel's abominations, which includes acts like violence. Um, but by and large, the sacrificial system was was a means of a uh, purifying worshipers so that they could enter sacred space uh, and b um, offering kind of responses to God, you know, or, you know, enacting fellowship or giving Thanksgiving or something like that. And so, so bringing an animal to say, thank you to God is a way of giving a gift to God. So what you have to do with Girard's system is say, no, you're actually not giving a gift. You're you're um, diverting your violent impulses onto the animal, and and I would say like, okay, there, it's non-falsifiable. Maybe that's what they're doing, but there's no way of of defending that. Or worst case scenario, you, you might, I can I can imagine some people saying, well, you're diverting God's violence that He might want to commit against you, and, uh, and just saying, no, look, we're doing it to this animal together. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, wait, why yeah, can't there, we be friends? <laughs> yeah, there there are different theories, like circumcision. That, um, you know, one one sociological explanation is that, you know, God demands the firstborn, but instead you circumcise, and so God's tricked because he sees the blood spurting, and he's like, okay, I've got a victim, and he's happy. Um, he, but he, he but can't again, stand the sight of blood. He looks away. He doesn't figure out the rest of it. That right. Happened. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, yeah, no, actually God's an investigator and he looks into these things. So, yeah. Well, Dr. Matthew Jeremiah Lynch, thank you Jeremy. very much. Sorry, Jeremy. I just assumed. <laughs> thank you very much for this book, Portraying Violence in the Hebrew Bible, a Literary and Cultural Study with Cambridge University Twe- Press. That's 2020. Uh, thank you for the book. Thank you, uh, so much for walking us, slow walking us through these ideas. And I'm sure this is going to be very generative for future studies. Happy to do so. Thanks so much, Drew. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. 
Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.